Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu, and today we will be talking to Jyoti Puri about her new book, Sexual States, Governance and the Struggle over the Anti-Sodomy Law in India, which was published by Duke University Press in 2016. Jyoti Puri is the Hazel Dick Leonard Chair and Professor of Sociology at Simmons University. She writes and teaches at the Crossroads of Sociology, Sexuality, Queer Studies, and Postcolonial Feminist Theory, Her most abiding interests relate to issues of sexuality, gender, race, nation, and state from a transnational slash post-colonial feminist lens. Um, Jyoti, welcome to the show. We are so thrilled to have you with us. Sneha, thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here, and thank you for hosting me, and uh, hello to all your listeners. Thank you. So before we delve into the book, I was wondering if you could um, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps um, how you became a sociologist? <laughs> um, that's an interesting question. It's been many years now. So um, yeah. I became a sociologist by accident. My interests, uh, particularly when I was in India and in graduate, um, you know, doing what is uh, what was one year of postgraduate education, um, I became increasingly interested in questions of culture and media and communications. And so when I came to the U.S. to um, for my master's, at the time I had applied for a master's degree, um, you know, the plan was that this is going to be a stepping stone until I can figure out what I want to do and where I want to go next. But um, when I arrived at Northeastern and I took classes in cultural studies and feminist theory and um, those would be really the two most important influences aside from, you know, reading people like Marx and um, Weber and uh, even Durkheim. You know, I really, I got hooked and um, that was it. And I just continued from the master's on to a PhD. And, um, you know, it very much felt like um, the place I wanted to be. Wow, that's... Uh... Yeah, that that sounds like a very happy accident. So that's great. <laughs> yes, it was a happy accident. And I have to say, um, you know, as a sociologist, in many ways, I don't think of myself as a very conventional one, because my view of sociology is really um, strongly filtered through cultural studies and um, feminist studies, and then later on, post-structuralism and transnational feminism. So, you know, yeah, but it's yes, it's been a very happy accident. <laughs> I mean, I could say that it's not a very conventional sociological book, too, and maybe that's why I really enjoyed it. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, you know, on that note, I'm really curious, how did this book come about and how did the idea of this project even take shape and develop? So what happened was um, it was uh, the end of 2001, either December 2001 or very early 2002, I saw this tiny little report um, that said that there had been a public interest litigation filed by this um, HIV AIDS organization called NAS Foundation, and it's based in Delhi, and that they had filed a writ in Delhi High Court asking for um, a modification in the anti-sodomy law, which is also called Section 377, and... um, In effect, they were asking for the decriminalization of homosexuality on the basis that it is interrupting um, public health efforts to contain the spread of HIV AIDS. So there was this little um, report, and I, as you had mentioned in your introduction, I'm um, a gender sexuality studies scholar, and I'm interested in questions about nations and states. And so when I saw this little report... I was there in 2002, and so I followed it up with a round of initial interviews just to get a sense of what was happening. And um, I think I went into it um, thinking that this could be an article 
or a chapter. I hadn't given it more thought than that. Just the topic itself was interesting. Uh, but then as I did the interviews, it became clear to me um, that there was something much bigger um, that needed investigation. And, um, and from there on, as I was constituting the project, um, I realized that I was more and more interested in the state um, and what gets invoked as the state and um, wanting to do more research around that. So in effect, it became an ethnography of the state. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. Um, I mean, that's really instructive also for scholars, uh, for younger scholars like me, because sometimes you you see an idea and so you just cast it aside as if it, it isn't big enough to become a dissertation um, or a bigger project, but clearly um, it can, as uh, you so beautifully put for us. Um, so it, I guess the first question I have is uh, that in this book, you show so clearly the repercussions of the hyper-visibility of um, the anti-sodomy law, this, uh, Section 377, which you term the homophobic law. Um, and I was hoping that you could share with our listeners how and why Section 377 came to become so hyper-visible and why that matters to the way we study and why laws like uh, Section 377 come to matter in the way we study sexuality and state power. And also if you could speak uh, a little bit to what, what happens now uh, that Section 377 has been repealed? You know, like, uh, what is the afterlife, I guess, of uh, the law as such? Yeah, they're great questions, Neha. Thank you. So um, the law comes into being in 1861, and that's um, it really was a British legacy. There was nothing comparable or parallel to this law that existed pre-colonially. And um, it was an expression of British anxieties about the sexual licentiousness um, that they perceived, particularly in the colonies. So interestingly, Britain did not have, England did not have anything that was comparable or directly parallel to Section 377 either. And so they introduce it in India, and then it is repeated in a number of um, uh, British colonies. And this particular law has a kind of you know, sort of an interesting life or um, half-life of sorts um, in the sense that it wasn't really used very much. And um, the fact that, you know, it's been around for more than 150 years, there aren't that many cases under this, particularly in terms of the higher courts. Um, It's very difficult to have information from the lower courts because that information doesn't get compiled. Um, But in terms of the higher courts, um, where some of these decisions are being made and where precedent is being set, there isn't that much um, given the time period or the sort of the duration uh, um, of the law. But what happens is uh, first in 1994 and then in 2001, um, there are two organizations, um, and it was the AIDS Bhedpa Virodi Andolan. Um, ABVA for short, in 1994, and the NAS Foundation in 2001, where they particularly identify Section 377 as a problem, both as an expression of institutionalized homophobia, um, but also as a kind of impediment in terms of um, HIV AIDS, both of these um, both of these organizations, actually ABVA was an autonomous group. It wasn't an organization, but both of these uh, writs really make the claim that it is impacting work around HIV AIDS by sort of really pushing same-sex sexuality underground and therefore poses a public health hazard, if you will. And so um, it was in that process that there was a certain kind of life that was breathed into the law. Um, And in a sense, on the ground, the law did make its impact felt, but in a kind of uneven and sporadic way, so that it was held, upheld as a kind of um, baton, wielded as a threat, you know, but there were not very many cases that were filed by constables um, indicting people under this law. So, so there's very little um, 
indication or very little trace of same-sex sexual activity being prosecuted under this law, but it was used on the streets as a kind of instrument of persecution, right? And oftentimes the threat of it is more than enough. So when these two writs, both in 94 and particularly the one in 2001, which became far uh, more known, and that was the one that mobilized uh, people around this particular law and, you know, the critiques of it, and it more people became aware of it, and then it sort of gathered into this momentum uh, opposing Section 377, that was the work of the writ or really the effect of it. And the writ itself, um, you know, took twists and turns in the Indian courts um, all the way from 2001 till 2013, and then a little bit even after that. And so um, that's what brought it to the public limelight. And even constables and people who are responsible for enforcing this law, they became more aware of it and its scope and its implications in ways that I think were much more uneven prior to that. Um, let me stop here and see if that sort of um, helps before I, or if you had any follow-up question, before I talk a little bit about um, now that the law has been decriminalized. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I was very struck by how in um, the first chapter itself, you talk about how the Section 377 was also almost um, deemed as uninteresting by the officials that you kept meeting because they wanted you to focus on, say, women's safety, right? And I guess uh, the um, the relationship between this law and other more spectacular laws, and uh, uh, can you tell us a little more about the, I guess, your position as a woman ethnographer studying Section 377, and was that, did that, matter to how hyper-visible or not it was in ways that you encountered it in these institutional contexts? Yes. So um, so that allows me to actually um, talk about the hyper-visibility of the law in a couple of ways. And certainly my, uh, my own gender representation and my uh, position as a researcher in this context. One aspect of it is the fact that um, this law, Section 377, has been used to harass and intimidate and even blackmail um, people who identify as queer or gay or koti or you know other sort of um, expressions of identity um, in ways that um, in ways that you know sort of make us understand that. This was just one aspect of it. And what I mean by that is, in a sense, in a more practical sense, or in a larger sense, the laws that have been used to harass people who are queer or understood as queer or trans or hijra, there's a whole host of them. Because Section 377 has a higher threshold in terms of if you're going to book someone under this law, then you have to have some kind of medical examination. There has to be paperwork that is filed. So even as it is being used as a threat, it's actually not being um, implemented or followed through very much. But at the same time, there's a host of other things. There's um, other um, laws and policies that are being used to harass um, so people are being charged under the um, vagrancy laws. Uh, people are being charged under public nuisance laws or threatened under them. Um, the anti-trafficking uh, law is the one that is being used particularly for hijras or those suspected of doing sex work, right? So um, there's a way in which the law exists, but that it is part of this broader nexus. Um, and the reason it becomes hyper-visible is because it gets singled out uh, by uh, these groups and organizations, by people who want to challenge the homophobia, by people who want um, to, um, you know, sort of bring, to call for the demise of this law, um, or really a, a kind of form of homophobia that has been institutionalized, that they do it by calling attention to this law. And it makes a certain amount of sense in the courts 
because, um, you know, as courts in terms of due process or legal processes, you have to bring to the courts a particular or a specific set of issues and say, this is the problem that needs to be remedied. And so they went through that by actually calling attention to this law. So the law sort of becomes, Section 377 becomes um, the emblem, becomes symptomatic of the broader homophobia, and in the process, it becomes hyper-visible, right? And so when you were saying about sort of when I was at these places, talking to police or other state officials and saying, I would like information, about how many cases have been um, filed under, you know, by police, um, how many cases do we have under Section 377, they're sort of looking at me perplexed. It's like, why would you want to be interested in this? That if you really want to do something, you know, worthwhile as a woman researcher, then look at rape laws. Because in a sense, there's so much visibility and again, to use your word, there's so much hypervisibility around rape laws, right? That's been identified as a serious problem that needs attention, never mind the fact that we don't do enough around it, or um, that law itself sometimes is insufficient to correct a problem. But they kept calling my attention to it, and they kept dismissing Section 377, which is an interesting indication and commentary on its own. Um, And this was happening at the earlier stages. But I think by the time the the NAS writ went in and out over the years through the courts, and there was so much media attention, I think more broadly, even for state officials, there was just, you know, just more recognition about this law, and they had more to say about it, and then it becomes more and more widely visible and widely recognizable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that uh, makes a lot of sense as to how uh, it just began to pervade in everyday conversation. I had conversations with traffic police officials that I was uh, spending time with right after uh, the repeal of um, Section 377, and they were just like, oh, you know what, like now men and men can marry and I was also very struck by the mistranslation of what repeal of 377 meant to mm-hmm. these people. But it really did color a lot of uh, conversations with almost everyone at that time. Um, That's so yeah. interesting. And do you have a sense of whether they were approving of it or um, reporting it? Or what was their, what was their read about, about the decriminalization? Yeah, I mean, this is a really good uh, uh, point to actually move to my next question, too, because... Uh, I had this conversation with a bunch of traffic police constables in Hyderabad and the constable who brought up the decriminalization of this law um, happened to be Muslim. And the Hindu constables immediately started making fun of him for being interested in this piece of uh, news to begin with, you know. And uh, the reason I'm saying this is because my next question was going to be about how uh, this uh, communalization and racialization of uh, the religious other, of the Muslim man or the Sikh man, um, uh, it, it, you show so beautifully uh, in your ethnographic vignettes about how it manifests itself in everyday law enforcement. Um, and I was wondering if you wanted to say a little more about that and uh, maybe I'll ask you uh, something else once uh, we once we delve into it. Yeah, Sneha, thank you for sharing that encounter. Um and, you know, it's, and I think that sort of your encounter with the traffic police um, really shows um, so explicitly about how um, these notions of, uh, you know, same-sex sexuality as um, somehow automatically being read as sexual devi- deviance and how that sexual deviance is associated with particular communities, how widespread that is, and particularly in terms of the police. So I think you are doing that your work in Hyderabad, um, whereas the conversations I have with police um, that I write about in the chapter that you're referring to, they are in Delhi, right? And so this kind of um, how really how widespread and uh, endemic these notions of sexuality and deviance and particular communities um, 
you know, they are. And so when I talked to um, police constables, this was something that kept coming up over and over again, both in the sort of the formal conversations, the, you know, the group discussions that I talk about, um, the informal conversations, I'd be there doing research, looking up um, some of these cases, uh, you know, in various police stations, and clearly somebody or the other would be interested um, in what I'm doing. They are reading me as an anomaly. You know, people are typically not, people like me, researchers are not there or they are not given permission. And so they would stri- strike up a conversation with me. And inevitably, there would be some aspect of it, which is directly tying um, Section 377 um, to Muslim communities. And that was something that, and then we would have conversations because I would push back by saying, no, look, the evidence is completely to the contrary because they are predominantly Hindu names. Um, And that's the one thing in terms of India or South Asia that you can typically uh, read from the names, um, the religious affiliation or the um, religious identity of people. And so I would present that as evidence and they would just dismiss it and say, no, we're seeing something to the contrary. We're seeing something else in terms of the, on the ground. And that was so deeply troubling to me. And at one point, um, you know, I went back to one of the senior um, police officers who had actually given me permission and helped me gain access uh, to some of this data. And he himself um, at the time, you know, the person I was talking to, he himself is sick. And and I told him, I said, you know, there is this racialization um, that is happening, this communalization that is happening. And I said, you know, the people who are uh, being um, associated with it are, are Muslims and not too far behind are Sikhs. And he basically just, he said to me, oh, no, that's just about sort of bad apples, right? So, where I was trying to bring to his attention, you really have a problem here. There is such there is such deep seated antipathy um, toward Muslims that is kind of expressing itself in this sexual idiom. Um, but you really need to pay attention to it. And he he just you know he did not he was not able to hear me. And I think since then, you know, with the coming in of um, the rise of the BJP with the expansion of uh, Hindu right-wing agenda, and then even with something that we're witnessing as we speak about sort of the unfolding of the coronavirus crisis in India, you're seeing that kind of very, very strong hostility toward Muslims in particular, and I think on occasion even in terms of Sikhs. Um, and so that's the thing that um, this kind of work around sexuality and really understanding the role of sexuality, um, you know, within the sort of social fabric, that's what it's, it unearths. And it is, it's deeply disturbing and difficult to hold and contend with, but we must. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think um, this this framing of uh, some of the uh, inconsistencies, I guess, of law enforcement on the ground uh, being rationalized away as a case of bad apples uh, came up very often in my own fieldwork. And uh, it's almost as if state officials recognize the fact that state states are inconsistent and subjective and, uh, you know, affective. But social scientists have come to this um, after like a long winded route of uh, perhaps being in denial. Um but, you know, like what you were saying about the rise of the Hindu right also made me think about how the very striking down of Section 377 happened uh, during BJP's reign. And it was, again, framed as something that uh, shows how much better uh, Hinduism as a religion is, like this like Hindu, uh, Hindu benevolence almost uh, juxtaposed with um, Christian or Islamic conservatism. And I was wondering if, like, um, you had encountered some of this during your fieldwork, or is it something that uh, emerged in the wake of the decriminalization? Um, yes, very much. Um, I think in the wake of decriminalization, and I think in its later stages. And um, you know, I think the Hindu right, uh, in to to a large extent, has been relatively quiet 
and silent about um, the decriminalization outcome, right? And the silence, I think, works in the ways that you were alluding to, that it allows them to say that there is something inherently benevolent in Hinduism in comparison to the extremism and the conservatism of other religions. I think the Hindu right is also sort of caught up in a different kind of conundrum. And the conundrum is very much this kind of Hindu agenda, right? And so the superiority of Hinduism since times immemorial, it's, you know, it's, um, it's deep roots, it's um, all of its, um, you know, the, it's, uh, um, the word that I'm looking for is it's kind of, it's um, elitism, it's superiority. That's the word I wanted. It's superiority in comparison to virtually all other religions, right? So on the one hand, that's the agenda. But on the other hand, what has happened, I think, in the last um, decade or so, the Hindu right, even as it maintains a distance or a critique of westernization, wants to have a place in on the global stage and specifically among some of the leading nations of the world. And so that desire, while at the same time presenting itself as very much Hindu, right? So that desire to be one of the leading nations of the world, which is also profoundly Hindu, and therefore that's what makes it, makes it distinct in comparison with other nations, that leads to this kind of conundrum in the sense that they can't even outrightly criticize the decriminalization of homosexuality because that would be read as being anti-modern. So there's a way in which the silence, I think, you know, little voices here and there have sort of squeaked about, yes, this is a good thing, or a few voices here and there, you know, that's not a good thing, that the decriminalization has happened. But by and large, what we've seen is this, um, you know, kind of there's been a silence, uh, holding back, um, not extensive commentaries. And I think it's because of this conundrum about wanting to be Hindu, but also wanting to be uh, modern in a way that would be recognizable to other nations of the world. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's such a powerful uh, thing to think about, like what silences do in times like this. And uh, thank you for that. That's really thought provoking. Um, uh, Okay, now just maybe perhaps moving a little bit to uh, the methodology aspects, because I, uh, I would love to hear more about how uh, you adopted this style of like a multi-sided ethnographic approach in this book. And was it, um, was it a choice? Uh, was it a conscious choice that you made? Or was it, um, you know, like as ethnographies often are, just a series of encounters that uh, made you think about uh, adopting a radically a multi-sided approach? Um, and perhaps you want to speak to how prominent this approach is in sociology, because I know it's a, it's fairly common in anthropology um, to study the state ethnographically across institutional contexts. And I was just wondering about your thoughts on that. Um, so in many ways, the mainstay of the ethnography is Delhi. And it became that because both NAS Foundation is located in Delhi and also that they had filed the public interest litigation in Delhi High Court, which is located in Delhi as well. So in so that sort of became, in a sense, it became the hub. But precisely because that was the hub, it, it raised for me the questions about what's happening in places like Chennai or Bangalore or Mumbai or uh, Kolkata, you know, that these are, um, these are places where there are groups and individuals and organizations which very much have a stake in um, the decriminalization. They have a stake in terms of how things turn out. If things don't go out, go along very well, then sort of, you know, there are so many people throughout the country that stand to be impacted. And um, another aspect of it, Sneha, was also the fact that NAS Foundation at it at the beginning had not been very good about involving and consulting other people and this was other groups and individuals and organizations in delhi itself they had consulted some but it was not very widely done 
And they had certainly not consulted people outside of Delhi in any systematic way. And so they had been, in the early years, there had been a lot of criticism around it. And rightly so. And so um, part of what I was doing is also not wanting to uh, reproduce that, but also I wanted to follow the criticism itself, right? And so in the process, also then engage with groups and perspectives that are outside of um, the hub where all of this is unfolding. And it just made for, it opened my perspective that much more. It, I think, made for uh, richer data. Um, you know, it pushed the analysis. Um, it, it brought out the nuances and the complexities in all of this. And um, so I would say that my approach was very much dictated by the project. And I think when we allow projects and those research questions that are emerging, when we allow them to dictate our methodologies, we're in just better position to do justice um, rather than just sort of determining, okay, you know, this is the place I want to be. This is where it's going to be most convenient. And so I'm just going to locate myself there, right? And, um, and, I, would, and I think this was also um, what you were um, gesturing to. I think really having multi-sided um, approaches can be incredibly useful. And where I've seen multi-sided approaches in sociology oftentimes comes from this sort of comparative perspective, right? That they tend to be about comparing one city with another or one context with another, one national context with another. And I just, you know, and I say this as a person who's been in sociology for more than a couple of decades now, um, you know, I'm deeply ambivalent about comparisons. And not that they can't be fruitful and, in fact, you know, can be very illuminating, um, but comparisons don't always, um, they're not necessarily or inherently good. They're not inherently positive because, you know, comparisons typically have a reference point. And that reference point is not always made transparent. It, you know, sometimes we don't realize our own biases in terms of what is the reference point for our uh, comparisons. And so that raises a whole lot of questions about what is it that we're comparing, um, you know, and whether those things are in fact comparable, right? And so we sort of end up with these analyses that may be reproducing our biases in all kinds of ways. So all to say that um, I think anthropology and even critical sociology, where we have ways of diversifying and complicating our um, sites, and whether that is across cities or whether that is within the state itself, right? Like this idea of the state institutions, because policing is not the same as bureaucratic institutions that are doing number counting, is not the same as the judiciary, is not the same as, as government or politically appointed bureaucrats. Um, and so, you know, it really does make sense to diversify and complicate how we are our very objects of analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I think the the way you've written about the number crunching agency and the police and even uh, the courts and the petitions itself, they, each of them uh, functions as a site and congeals its own sort of anxieties of around working and rationalities of governance. And I think that comes through very clearly. Um, so thank you for that. I was, uh, I mean, I personally found the book very helpful in acting as a template in the kind of uh, writing that I want to do, uh, because it also uh, rests on a multi-sided ethnographic approach. And I have been personally feeling a little anxious about whether or not that would be legible in sociology. But then I was like, oh, great, I, I do have something to, you know, like fall back on. Um, I'm, uh, if I may, yeah. I'm so, I mean, it just, I'm so delighted to hear that. And I think, you know, people like you and upcoming sociologists, emerging scholars, um, some of us who are more senior, I think we just have to work to create these kinds of spaces and uh, to create room within sociology to expand the boundaries of the discipline or what gets counted 
and gets uh, recognized within di- the discipline, right? And the discipline itself, the boundaries are capacious enough to be able to hold all of this. Um, I think it's, you know, when we, and I mean by, you know, sort of this collective we of sociologists, we decide about, you know, what is sociological and what's not, and then end up with sort of me- narrow understandings of it. So I'm so glad to hear about the work, kind of work you're doing. No, I mean, uh, I, I know that m- more of us are definitely emerging and trying to push uh, the boundaries of the field. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's great to have these conversations. Um, I guess when you were speaking about the comparative element, uh, another substantive question kind of popped into my head. Um, and uh, I guess a lot of the work that I have encountered in um, sexuality and state power and stuff um, it tends to uh, it tends to emphasize how social control of sexuality in India has often emerged from an anxiety around lineage and caste purity um, especially like endogamy and exogamy and these kinds of questions so uh, I was just wondering uh, and I know you don't do, do this in the book and like I don't think you have to do everything in a book but I was wondering how your framework perhaps can speak to further empirical research on maybe incorporating caste into uh, the framework of a sexual state? Yeah, you know, Sneha, that's a really good question. And it's something that I've been asked about before, or, you know, it's come up before in terms of why I do not have a substantial conversation about caste. And the only time I make reference to it, and that is, you know, quite briefly, is in context, in relationship to Muslim communities, because, um, some of the communities that are Muslim, not all of them, historically um, have been people from Dalit um, backgrounds who have chosen to embrace Islam, right? And this is sort of stretches back historically. And so, um, so that's about sort of the extent of it. And in many ways, it, it was because, interestingly enough, it did not come up, um, it did not come up in my conversations with constables, with um, uh, state officials, with bureaucrats. The question of caste simply, um, it, it didn't, it was really about gender and it was about religion, right? And it was about gender expression and trans subjects and hijras and kotis and um, uh, queer people and all of that, but not in terms of caste. And I think. What um, what I have been thinking about since then and work in this area that other people have done, which is the work that you were referring to, which is about sexuality and caste purity and marriage and um, sexual intimacy that is cross-caste and, um, you know, again, how sexuality is such a pivotal node in terms of how... No- caste boundaries and these sort of discourses of caste purity are maintained and reproduced, you know, it makes me want to think about um, the sort of how questions of caste were coded, perhaps in conversations that were not, um, that did not sort of, uh, that didn't rise to the surface as caste, but were in fact implicitly encoded in there, right? Um, And so, so I think this idea of um, sexual states, I would hope and I would want to um, think about that more deeply in terms of, um, um, it, and, and sorry, before I finish that sentence, I think, and since the sort of the work that I've been doing, um, and since the book came out and, you know, you sort of finished the book back, I don't know, back in 2014, and then it sort of, you know, goes through its paces for the next couple of years and comes out finally in 2016, um, the terrain has changed also pretty significantly, right? And the questions of caste have come up even more clearly to the forefront um, in ways that are just impossible to ignore at this point. So, um, so when I think about it from those lenses, I would hope that, um, you know, we're just better, I'm better at reading um, these issues or the, um, the the references to caste and notions of purity uh, much more clearly. Mm-hmm. 
No, um, uh, and I think when uh, a point in the book that I found pretty intriguing was when you do mention a caste and subalternity amongst the police officials themselves, right? Like the uh, the subalterns of the state, uh, so to speak, the constables and the Delhi police. And I, w- I was really, uh, I was wondering how you managed to sort of get access, I guess, to uh, Delhi police and uh, the, the changes in the public image of Delhi police since 2014, and especially in the wake of the um, Delhi riots uh, just recently or the uh, and uh, the anti-CA, NRC protests and how violent they kind of became. Um, and were these like concerns and questions that you had when you were working with state organizations in Delhi? Yeah, you know, honestly, I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that I wanted to make every effort. And um, it just so happened that, um, uh, so the, the way to get access in terms of Delhi police is twofold. One is when you go to something like the police headquarters, ITO, um, the ITO building and, you know, you sort of talk to um, senior officials and there's a real class and sometimes caste gap between senior police officials who've gone through um, the Indian police service route versus constables who are simply given training on the ground. And, um, you know, they're, they have much lower requirements in terms of educational qualifications, et cetera. And so you can either talk to the police, senior police officials, and you can also go to uh, police stations, various, um, uh, and talk to the station head and say, you know, this is who I am and sort of, you know, can you give, can you help me here? So so that was the beginning of it. And I really didn't know what to expect, but um, the senior police officials were very helpful um, because they sort of read my, you know, sort of re- they read me as respectable. Um, my gender uh, presentation didn't seem to be threatening at all to them. Um, they saw my name, um, you know, they recognized that and they were able to sort of um, make certain assessments about me, uh, which were not of concern, you know, which were not concerning to them. And at the same time, I had this institutional affiliation to a university in the United States. So that made me more respectable. And so there's something, you know, kind of there's this respectability as associated with research and particularly a foreign institution that I think is not afforded to people who are journalists. They tend to, sh- they're much more wary about journalists and they are concerned about what's going to show up, you know, within a day or two in the headlines. So they just treated me differently and they gave me the access and they were sort of, you know, the worst of it was that they were patronizing. So my, my gender um, and my, the sort of, you know, kind of performance about please help me teach me here. I'm here to learn. I need to understand what's happening was, you know, that led to a certain kind of patronizing attitude, which I think you must have picked up in the pages of the book as well. And the police constables, um, I have to say, all of the ones that I met, even the ones where we had this sort of vehement, you know, kind of this agitated discussion and we would disagree, they treated me with respect. And they treated me with respect because of my class and my um, social status. I mean, there's just no two ways about that. How, if I were to go back now, in the wake of what has been happening in the last several years, the criticism they get after 2014 with the Nirbhaya rape case and, you know, and all of what has happened since then, the agitations, the protests, their role in the anti-Muslim riots that we've seen recently, um, the, you know, the sort of shutting, the Jamia Malia, the shutting down of protests, um, I think I think they would be a lot more wary. Um, I think, you know, I'm not sure what it would take, but I would have to work very differently and much, much harder for anybody in my position to gain access at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the, uh, the times, I mean, the, the uh, institution of the police has also undergone a lot of change, at least in public image. Um uh, I was just curious, have they actually, have any of the informants, even for that matter, like maybe um, Nas Foundation people that you uh, spoke with or others, have they read parts of uh, sexual states? 
um, probably not NAS Foundation, but there were other people who've been um, involved with this, um, you know, people that I've been in conversation with for an extended period of time, and folks who were not necessarily part of um, the NAS Foundation writ, but they became involved fairly early on, particularly once NAS, the writ started, you know, its twists and turns through the legal system. And so there were other um, voices that came in. There were other uh, writs, friendly writs that were filed. And also once uh, NAS Foundation encountered its first barrier, its first full-fledged barrier, it became an opportunity for them and for the lawyers, the legal group that was representing them, it became an opportunity to actually involve other groups across the nation and have these meetings and, you know, develop, make decisions uh, via consensus. And so, um, so some of those folks, um, these are the people I've been in conversation with. Uh, I know they've read the book and, um, you know, at least parts of it. And uh, they've, they've been quite um, generous, I think, by saying that I've sort of, you know, um, it still is the only book uh, length treatment of the mobilization against Section 377, even though there are many, many, you know, tens and tens and tens of people who are writing on this, but most of it has been in the form of articles or uh, book projects that, you know, for which um, the 377 is one aspect, not necessarily the only or the primary aspect. And so, um, so yeah, so, you know, I've received interesting feedback uh, uh, from them. Right. Um, and for, I mean, for me, the most perhaps compelling um, argument was also this strange treatment of the law as both oppressive, but also the beacon of light, right, uh, as uh, being the only way out of uh, the oppression. And uh, I was curious about, I guess, the theoretical inspirations behind thinking about the multiplicity or the polyvocality of law and uh, who you primarily drew from intellectually or theoretically uh, to think about law in this manner? Yeah, what a wonderful question. Um, I, for me, the feminist critiques of sexuality in the state have been the primary sources of inspiration. So the people that have really, you know, shaped my thinking are people like M. Jackie Alexander, um, Begonia Arashaga, Arash or sorry, Begonia Arashaga, um, and you know, uh, uh, Patricia Oberoi, feminists within the Indian context, uh, Mary John and John Nair, um, and others, you know, so that's, these are the folks who've been really looking at um, this interface between sexuality and state and opening up its complexities, its inconsistencies, its subjective dimensions, um, the very ways in which sexuality and gender are continually mobilized, um, both in explicit ways as well as in uh, less conspicuous ways. Um, so these are the people that I turned to and at the same time, um, you know, needed to develop something that was required by the project itself. You know, they're not necessarily talking about the anti-sodomy law or mobilizations um, to, in terms of decriminalization. So to take that as the inspiration and to then um, see what emerges um, when you bring that approach to bear on this particular topic. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like taking notes as to what to read next. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so, sorry, you were also talking about sort of the impact of uh, cultural anthropology. Um, as a field that has been very, very helpful to me, that has been very influential and a lot of the post-structuralist literature, political, um, uh, the political anthropologists who are writing through post-structuralist frameworks, um, these are the folks that I look to, um, Thomas Hansen, Finn's Deputat, um, you know, um, who else would I name? Um, 
um, um, I guess, uh, Timothy Mitchell. Timothy Mitchell, yes, absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before I uh, let you go, I was just wondering if you could share with our listeners what you're working on right now and what I guess we can hope to read in the near future. Thank you for your interest. Um, so this is going to seem like a sort of sharp pivot, and it is, but it is not. So my current work is, it's on a project on death and migration within the context of North America, both um, the United States and Canada. And it's a project on death out of time and out of place. And the way I'm coming at it is through South Asian migrants from the early 20th century to the current and the ways in which they've had to and continue to navigate issues of death, um, you know, in terms of funerals, particularly cremations and burials, um, how they have had to, um, you know, navigate that in terms of um, against the backdrop of uh, governance and law and ordinances and zoning and property and racism and nativism and right-wing uh, Christian nationalism. Um, so so that's sort of, um, that's really the project. And um, it's a project that is taking me into really new, down new pathways, into new areas, into engaging different sets of literatures, even as I continue to hold on to, um, you know, the significance of gender, sexuality, but in, in new ways, I would say. Um, it's, you know, I'm thinking about um, their relevance uh, in ways that I hadn't thought about before. So it's expanding my uh, knowledge base, um, even as it is taking me in new directions. And I'm engaging questions of migration and settler colonialism, um, empire, um, so on and so forth. Wow, that sounds really uh, interesting, and I look forward to reading what uh, you write about all of this. Um, thank you so much for your time, Jyoti. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have really enjoyed this conversation. I hope so. I certainly enjoyed it. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and again, thank you for having me on this forum. Um, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. And, uh, you know, stay safe uh, and stay healthy during the surreal times and take care. Yes, you too. I have to say for that reason, it's been sort of particularly surreal working on this new project in these conditions and in these times. So, um, you know, it becomes palpable to all of us. But yes, I echo what you said. Stay safe. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.